Welcome, everyone, to another edition on this Sunday night, December 5th, of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, in this time slot last night, we attempted something that has never been done, as far as I know, on this program, if not in the world, ever been done before. We attempted using hyperdimensional codes and frequencies and geometry and ratios to literally open hailing frequencies with a one-time interstellar visitor to the solar system. As you know, several years ago, a little object called a muamua, named by NASA, which when you translate it from Hawaiian means scout, actually there's a more lengthy translation that I'll get to in a few minutes. Anyway, it passed through the solar system, took a right-hand turn, and is now leaving in the direction of Pegasus, which is a constellation uh, well-known to amateur astronomers, never to return because it, it came in and departed in excess of the escape velocity of the solar system, which is how we know it was our first mainstream science-recorded interstellar visitor. Well, there have been a lot of theories floating around in the ether, particularly those uh, presented by ourselves some years ago, right after uh, Oumuamua hove into view, as well as a major Harvard astronomer named uh, uh, Dr. Abby Loeb, who are portending to look at the data around Oumuamua and to construct a model which says it was not a natural object, but in fact, it was some kind of artificial sentinel, bracewell probe, or, in NASA's parlance, a scout. Anyway, last night we tried, for the first time, a major transmission experiment as a run-up to a major weekend of communications we're planning on Christmas weekend. Christmas Eve, Christmas night, and on the night after Christmas, the 26th. Well, we set up our experiment with the courtesy of Dr. Um, I'm sorry, not Dr. Um, David Sarita and uh, Jimmy... Uh, um, I'm blanking on Jimmy's last name. Um, and we um, had no idea if we were going to get anything. In fact, we did. And we got something so extraordinary that we're going to take the first half hour or so of tonight's program as a prelude to an update on what's going on vis-a-vis -vis the UFO UAP issue uh, Blanchett, Blanchett, Jimmy Blanchett. There are times when the mind just kind of goes cattywampus. Anyway, um, as, as a kind of a backdrop to what we're going to talk about in terms of official reactions in Washington, uh, the Congress, the Senate a certain key senator, the Pentagon, you know, the whole in crowd in Washington are stumbling over themselves trying to right the ship after 70-plus years of dissembling on this, you know, idea that we are not alone. And uh, it's kind of amusing in one sense because uh, the excuses are flying thick and fast and the uh, forgets forget-me-nots of history are strewn all over our path, and we're going to get into all of that detail in the uh, two and a half hours of the show. But I wanted to start with um, uh, David Sarita back tonight, 
And so, without further ado, let me give you a kind of a thumbnail sketch on who David is. David is a citizen scientist. He is, uh, like myself, a generalist. He has been working for decades um, in the vineyards trying to figure out what the heck involving all this is really going on. I mean, he has a background in in, uh, world religions, meditation, philosophy, science, both Western and what you would call fringe, physics, photography, screenwriting. I mean, he is a generalist. He's appeared, by the way, we, we turn out to be alums about the same time frame when I was doing uh, uh, Coast to Coast with Art and uh, George Norrie. Uh, David was also on those shows. He's done Jimmy Church and John Wells. He even was apparently uh, uh, interviewed or was interviewed by Shirley MacLaine, I have a very weird, interesting little Shirley MacLaine story when Robin and I were invited to dinner in Santa Fe uh, with Shirley MacLaine, and um, she, she she basically came off as my mother. It's so amusing. Anyway, um, David uh, is one of the two uh, investigators who spearheaded our efforts last night to send a regular three-dimensional set of radio transmissions at two key frequencies, 144.1 megahertz. A hertz is one cycle per second, so a megahertz is a million cycles per second right in the uh, uh, UHF band. And another simultaneous transmission um, at 432 megahertz. And these numbers were not chosen at random. They were specifically picked because they are, in fact, key hyperdimensional frequencies that show up in the uh, hyperdimensional physics model, and that's why we chose them. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that David will go through. Well, as we're sending our transmissions last night, and what I want to do is I want to refer everyone now to the Other Side of Midnight uh, guest page. The way you get there is you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, you click on uh, the banner at the top, which basically says... Uh, Let me read it here. It says, um, with brilliant red on on black and white, the remarkably rapid revolution going on in Washington over UFOs. And believe me, there's stuff going on behind the scenes that is going to make you really pay attention. So right under there, you see a uh, uh, fast links to items. Click on my name. That takes you down to my items. Item number one, we're monitoring La Palma as usual. You may have heard, and I didn't get the news in time to have it posted, but Cynthia may be able to do that during the show. Uh, In addition to La Palma, remember I mentioned last night that there appeared to be a kind of a rush of volcanic eruptions all around the world that have been dormant for some time? Uh, Well, La Palma's not the only one. There was a major volcano in Indonesia, which is now blown its stack and apparently uh, has killed a lot of people. I don't, I, you know, the, the, the count is still going up. So again, there appears to be some kind of planetary-wide uh, geophysical activity, which again goes along with the model that as the physics changes, as the background energy rises, these uh, geophysical and meteorological events are going to occur more frequently. I mean, look, we've got a blizzard in Hawaii tonight with 100-mile-an-hour winds. 
which was part of our news uh, uh, announcements last night. Okay, item number two. This now is where things get really interesting. As I said, if you want to click on that, this is a really amazing three-dimensional color animation prepared by NASA, by the Hubble Space Telescope Institute in Baltimore. It came out very shortly after Oumuamua's appearance. It shows you in three-dimensional exquisite animation the the orbital trajectory of this object, this mysterious object, which came plummeting toward the solar system at about a 33-degree tetrahedral angle, which was my first indication that it wasn't natural. And then as it passed around the sun, made a kind of a screaming uh, right-hand turn, um, and left in the direction of the constellation of Pegasus, the great square, uh, where, by the way, the first known exoplanet was discovered back in 90, 1995. Remember when Ted Koppel on Nightline actually did a live show? Keith will remember that, because it was really very unusual that uh, Koppel would send a crew to Boston to the Harvard College Observatory, where, of course, you couldn't see the the planet around uh, uh, 51 Pegasi, but they spent the half-hour nightline talking about the import and the impact and the implications of discovery of the first known extraterrestrial planet outside the solar system. So, Pegasus, part of our developing gestalt around this entire subject. Anyway, as this object came through, it did something after it uh, rounded the sun that made everybody sit up, us included. And it's probably one of the key reasons why Abby Loeb, remember the former director of the Harvard College Observatory, just like decades previous, Donald Menzel was the director of the Harvard College Observatory. And those of us, uh, uh, Joe Bookman, I think will will have some things to say about uh, Donald Menzel. Anyway, Abby Loeb in that chair was the first academic to propose, other than ourselves sitting here on the other side of midnight, uh, about two years earlier, that a muamua, in fact, could have been an artificial construct of some kind, perhaps, perchance, what would be known in the literature as a Bracewell probe. And we'll get into what that is when we... Uh, actually uh, uh, begin our conversation. Anyway, what made it so extraordinarily weird, and the reason that Loeb got really focused on the potential artificial nature of uh, Oumuamua, is because as it left the solar system, instead of doing what every other object normally does, which is to slow down, you know, I tossed a ball into the air, it fell to earth, I know not where, but it slowed down before it fell back. In this case, Oumuamua did not slow down according to the timeless Newtonian physics of all orbiting objects in the galaxy, in the universe. Instead, it accelerated by about 10%, which is impossible, unless there is something really wondrously anomalous going on. Now, the mainstream said, oh, well, it's really easily explainable. It's just a comet. It's a dead comet, you know, close passage around the sun, caused it to heat, and the heating caused gases to escape. The gases, you know, action, reaction, Newton's third law, 
pushed it in different directions, accelerating it away from the sun. Totally explicable. Except every major observatory on the planet, from Keck to Saratololo to Hubble itself in orbit, as they did deep, deep scans of Oumuamua, which was never more than a little tiny flickering point of light in even the biggest telescope. All the data that we have was from an unresolved below pixel resolution twink, as my grandmother would have said. And all these scientific inferences were based on analysis of that tiny pulsating point of light. Why was it pulsating? Because of Muamua, it turned out, was tumbling. It was rotating chaotically with a period of about eight hours. Uh, we may get into later in the morning some of the physics of why I think that was taking place. But anyway, back to the anomalous motion. If, in fact, all these observations, which zeroed in during those few, you know, couple weeks when Oumuamua was within a few million miles of the Earth, something like 20 million miles, and they got really good scans, spectroscopic and deep imaging, et cetera, et cetera, there was not a trace of a comet-like halo or jetting material or dust or anything associated with what would be called conventional outgassing producing a rocket-like effect. So you had, in essence, a dark, solid object, which, by the way, from the light curves, turned out to be 10 times brighter than any natural object ever photographed by any astronomical observatory on Earth ever before in interplanetary or interstellar space, 10 times brighter, it put it up there in the, in the reflectivity range of brilliant, polished aluminum. Can you say hull plating, anyone? Anyway, so this object, which we never saw, all this data is from the light curve analysis, was accelerating as it left the sun. Now, I, unlike Abby Loeb, am privy to other physics, including the work of my dear departed physicist friend, Bruce De Palma. And back in the 1970s, Bruce De Palma, I showed the graph last night, if you want to go and take a look, tossed in a mechanical device that he designed two steel pinballs simultaneously into the air in an arc in front of a gridded screen. And then he took time-lapse stroboscopic images. Click, 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 click. So he would get the trajectory and measure the relative velocity of one of the balls that was not spinning compared to the simultaneous ball just a few inches away going up in the same arc, which was spinning at like 27,000 times per minute. I mean, really spinning. And what he discovered, which was stunning and shocking and violates everything we think we know about conventional physics, is that the spinning ball rose faster. It was accelerating in Earth's gravity field. Remember, up is up and down is down. And then as it reached the top of the arc, it fell back toward the, the laboratory floor faster than the non-spinning ball. This, of course, is what I believe accounts for Oumuamua's bizarre anomalous acceleration. 
it was an active hyperdimensional object under influence of the field, the HD field around the solar system, powered mainly by the sun, the huge spinning mass in the center of the system. And of course, mainstream physicists, if they can't see cometary jetting, they will have no clue as to why this object, in fact, could behave so anomalously. Now, to his credit, Loeb came up with a plausible, possible mainstream explanation, along with his uh, co-author, whose name escapes me. And in their published paper, they think that Oumuamua is basically a big, flat, aluminized solar sail, and it's now tumbling. The problem is that on that model, the rotation rate should change, as well as with the outgassing model, because you can never in nature have something so perfect that the jetting would go through the center of mass, the center of gravity of a tumbling object in space, a natural, you know, cometary nucleus, let's say. The fact is that during all the observations until Oumuamua dwindled to a point of light beyond the reach of even the world's largest telescopes, like the Keck, the rotation period did not change, which means if it was being impelled by solar radiation pressure, there should have been changes in the rotation as well as the acceleration. So we are, we are like in the Sherlock Holmes position when you have eliminated the possible, you got to go for the impossible. And that is that a muamua was some kind of extraordinary artificial object which rounded the sun, remained totally silent. There was an actual mainstream listening effort uh, bankrolled by the Breakthrough Listening Project, which borrowed, uh, actually they rented, the Green Bank Radio Telescope uh, in West Virginia, 140-foot dish, and they listened on many different frequencies. They heard nothing. And what was really remarkable when I'm looking at all this is that it never occurred to them, or maybe it did and they kind of freaked out and decided not to, it never occurred to them to try to send its signals. They did not send any information to Oumuamua. So like the sentinel in Arthur Clarke's story about the object on the moon that when it received signals, it suddenly came alive and began to broadcast, which was the basis of 2001 Space Odyssey. They never sent a signal. They just listened. And of course, it was absolutely silent. Last night, for the first time that I know, we, with the help of David Sarita and Jimmy, uh, um, uh, I'm, why am I blanking on Jimmy's last name? It's very bizarre. Very, very bizarre. Um, anyway, um, we sent, for the first time, radio signals coded in the same mathematics, uh, bachelet. Sorry, sorry. You know, I'm, I'm obviously my 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 mind is going tonight. It's I I did not get much sleep. I got to say that after last night's extraordinary developments, I did not get a lot of sleep, and neither did David Sarita. So, without further ado, let me go to uh, our first guest of the evening, David Sarita from Canada, somewhere north, on the plains of Alberta of of Iowa in Canada, who spent all night doing the analysis we're going to be talking about. And boy, did we get some amazing data from this test experiment. 
David, you're on the air. Fantastic lead in there, Richard. It's um, I mean we've we've this is our third um, program together in, in this series on this idea of signaling a muamua, and it, it it starts with Jimmy Blanchett's discovery of a phenomenon not unlike what Tesla and Marconi discovered as possible extraterrestrial signaling or interference in the early days of radio, this anomalous kind of what we call chirping. Um, it was happening at 144.1 megahertz for Jimmy, actually as Amuamua was coming in in 2017 is when the phenomena started for Jimmy Blanchett and that may or may not be a coincidence. So last night we decided and we planned this to do our first test to send a series of tones and it reminds me of that scene in Close Encounters of the Third Kind when the 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 UFOs meet the military on the dark side what they called the dark side of the moon which was really the back of Devil's Tower Wyoming where they start signaling each other a series of tones are you like talking this. about this yeah so what we did last night um, just for those who don't remember <laughs> it's what we did last night was something very similar now you can play our tones right yeah I'll play I mean the first you know 30 seconds or so of what we sent Amuamua last night now these tones were sent on a carrier wave of 144.1 megahertz and alternatively 432 megahertz as the carrier wave but these tones are audible. well this was simultaneous simulcasting on these two frequencies right right well no he did it alternately oh okay 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 yeah these are our tones sent last night yeah So anyway, those tones, they, they, they are one golden ratio proportion to each other. So we sent those out last night. Amuamua was 3.69 hours away at the speed of light. So that's about how long it took for a speed of light signal to reach them. Although we believe there's a faster than light function in the way we're doing this. And we have our handheld radios tuned to receive at those two frequencies. And I demonstrated last night on your show how my radio started this phenomenal chirping sound, which sounds kind of like language. It sounds like birds chirping. And then it stopped. And then <clears throat> I want to point out that for the last eight or nine months that I've been working with Jimmy Blanchett and we've been sending signals to each one of the inner planets, I should say, the the chirping sound is much quicker and much more aggressive, and it tends to happen within moments of the transmission. Uh, 
And when it only seems to happen within about a radius of 20 feet of where the transmission took place. So my office where I am now is 40 feet from my house. There's no Wi-Fi in here. My internet is on Ethernet. I have no background radiation checked on my tri-field meter in radio frequency and magnetic mode. So what we're experiencing has nothing to do with any type of electromagnetic interference. When the chirping happens on the radio, there is no RF activity up to eight gigahertz checked on a meter. So it has nothing to do with radio frequency interference. So what happened last night? So wait, wait, let, let me get this straight. Yeah. Some other physics demonstrably, measurably is activating the radios like a, like a, like an amplifier speaker system, like a, like a, like a, like a hi-fi but the radio itself is not really being used as a radio. It's merely a transducer to, to receive and to then broadcast to your ear these signals that are returning in far in excess of the speed of light. Yes, and they're, they're not they're, – my radio frequency meter shows no activity at all. No EM waves. The, in the radio spectrum, no. There's nothing – and this this meter is sensitive up to eight gigahertz, which is extremely high, and of course is much higher than the transmission because a gigahertz is a billion hertz. Yep. So, so what happens? What I did last night. Now I've done this test many times with Jimmy, where I take my radios in the house, I tune them to the transmitting frequency, so one forty four one, and I had a, another radio at four thirty two. I turn them on to receive, and I did this last summer. They're quiet all night. They only make noise when I bring them back into my office where I did the transmissions. So last night, they started chirping. After our show, I went in and I made a few videos of the chirping. And it was really incredible what, what, what I discovered. Because what I did is made audio recordings of the chirping with an holding up a frequency meter to give me digital readouts of the frequency of each chirp. And to, to my astonishment, it was literally like human words and languages. There were dozens of frequency numbers flashing really, really quickly, to which I was able to capture a few numbers and write them down and do some math. But what got more amazing is when you cued me, Richard, to slow it down... So I took the audio into Final Cut Pro Editing Bay, into the audio bay, and I slowed it down to 10%, and I zoomed in on the waveforms, the actual waveforms. Now, I want to point out at the same time, and these, these are items that are up on your site right now. Item number one is during the transmission. Now, let me tell folks again how to get there. You go to the other side yep. of midnight.com. You click on tonight's banner, which has that beautiful picture of the Capitol with a flying saucer poised in front of it with uh, Steve and, and uh, uh, Joe's name down at the bottom. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Click right under the banner on the guest page. You will see fast links to items. Click on David's items. And that will take you to his section of radio with pictures. And you're going to see some amazing data that is just literally uh, out of the oven, a few hours old. Yeah. And I don't want to speed through this because it's no, no, so no, 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 no. We, we, we can go past the break. I mean, this, okay, this so, is why we're here. You know. Okay. So item number one are close-ups 
of UAP UFOs that appeared between the camera at Jimmy's antenna in in uh, in northern Arizona and Oumuamua. So we were transmitting in the direction of Oumuamua. Yeah, hang on a sec. If, if 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 you go to my section, which is right above David's, there's a wide angle shot from uh, Jimmy's antenna with a with a bright object circled. The bright object is a UAP UFO. The objects in the front are the antenna. It's aimed toward Pegasus. Muamua is right there in the background. So whatever kept, and it kept appearing. We got, we had dozens of these sightings recorded on video by Blanchett during the show, during the three hours. And there's so much stuff to go through that it, and it has to, human has to go through it. That you, you can't automate this. And then below that number four, I've got an enlargement of, of one of the objects that appeared. Right. So these are not these are not uh, uh, what's the word I'm I'm looking for? The, these are not you know speckles in the sky. They're not uh, you know scintillation of stars. They're in fact something anomalous seen above the antenna, hovering, literally you know uh, photobombing the experiment that underwent for three hours during the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And we'll come back in a few moments with the rest of the debrief on last night's historic Amuamua experiment. Do not touch that dial. My background education is in uh, evidence-based medicine and research methods out of the University of Toronto. Graduate school there, then I went on to Oxford in evidence-based medicine, and then on to McMaster, my doctorate and postdoc in evidence-based medicine. I also did some certificate program at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in biological warfare, weaponization of pathogen in 2001 basically how you would take viruses, bacteria, etc. Any type of pathogen and weaponize them, put them on a missile to use them for nefarious means. And I wanted to learn as an epidemiologist in case my city or my country, just to understand how it works and if that can be done. I was working at the WHO, Pan American Health, mid-2019. And then we started to get these cases out of Italy in January, February. These these images on the television of people dropping dead. I'm speaking to you honestly, as a scientist, but openly. Those images out of China were fake. That was part of this game to scare the world. At that time, WHO asked me to change my position and to become a pandemic advisor to them because they were the global agency and they didn't know what was going on. Because of my training in evidence-based medicine and uh, research methods and clinical epidemiology, they wanted me to help them understand what was coming out of China and Italy. So I actually was connected to WHO and PAHO in the beginning of the COVID outbreak. And a lot of their messaging was from me. 
people like me behind the scenes, we took a lot of beating from the press, hammering, because we were calling for a balanced age restratified approach. Damage had already been done by Fauci and Books. It was Fauci and Books' lockdowns that harmed America, killed people. Many people died in America because of their lockdowns. It was Fauci refusal to admit and to recognize the potency of early outpatient treatment. But the groups I work with now, like Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Peter McCullough, etc., we champion early treatment and we have, you know, the treatment plans and stuff where you treat the infected high-risk person early, prevents hospitalization and death. Fauci and they damaged us in that regard. They will refuse to recognize the antivirals. We have estimates now of the 750,000 Americans, quote-unquote, who may have died from COVID. About 700,000 would be alive today, 90%. Oh and that's gosh. our math when we look at the data. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans died because of the NIH and the CDC refusal to allow doctors to prescribe early outpatient treatment. I have many, I know many doctors, many of them across America, right now fighting their state boards and stuff for their licenses. Their licenses have been stopped or pulled. They threatened with being fired because they prescribed early treatment that was helping their patients. I'm Dr. Paul Alexander, and uh, I have really thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to be on the other side of the news because it has shown me to be one of the forums that, probably one of the only forums that allows one to be fully expressive and to uh, and to share how they really feel about the events um, in the hopes of sharing with a larger audience and an exchange of ideas so that people can become much more informed and understand the situation around them for their own decision-making. So I am very thankful of this opportunity for the other side of the news. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. To be distinguished from the other side of the news, here on this Sunday night, December fifth, and uh, our guest uh, this evening, the first guest of the of the evening, for an extraordinarily interesting conversation, is David Sarita, who is describing the methodology following the extraordinary events, the response events, to our pioneering efforts to communicate through mainstream radio technology with a distant interstellar visitor known by NASA as Amuamua, a scout. And David, you please pick it up there because this is this is riveting. This is this is like beyond our wildest dreams except I, I I hope something would happen. I didn't think we'd have people showing up, and I say people inclusively, literally over the antenna 
posing, doing selfies in front of the antenna aimed toward Muamua, which is invisible billions of miles away behind them in the dark. And I really didn't expect that we would get detailed radio frequency communications that ultimately, if we work at it seriously over the next several days till next weekend, we might actually be able to decode. So please continue. Okay, first I want to just point out that in science you always establish background first, right? So you have what is like your your background radiation or, for example, with COVID pneumonia, you would want to know your what is your background worldwide pneumonia death toll and how high are you above background. So when when Jimmy and I have been doing this experiment and running his cameras, which are video cameras sensitive to low light, nighttime, of his antenna pointed in the direction of a transmission, we'd be lucky to get one of these things to show up. Last night, I lost count at <laughs> over seven of them. And Lucky seven. Tetrahedral seven. You know, typical video is running 30 frames a second at nighttime, probably 15 or, you know, 12. And when when an image on a video captures something that's moving incredibly fast, and and the fastest data we have from Kevin Day, the radar operator on the USS Princeton, he stated this on Netflix at the end, and nobody was paying attention, and so did uh, Commander David Fravor confirm this, that a UAP jumped 60 miles in one second. Now, 60 miles a second is 216,000 miles per hour so you're, you're even f way way faster than a meteorite and you're certainly faster than a jet that peaks at 2500 miles an hour so mm. forget Mach 3 and 5 and the media and all that stuff so <laughs> if these things in front of jimmy's camera between the antenna and the muamua were moving at any velocity even at 30 frames a second they would be blurred streaks or or not even visible at all because when a solid object is moving at any velocity at night, you won't really see anything unless it's a meteor skimming the top of the atmosphere and creating a meteoric burn. So these things exactly are posing in standstill mode. And you can see the image on the top. If you blow that up really big, you'll see a point of light at the bottom tip. So this thing has shadowing. This is David's so, uh, number one, 1A. 1A, it has curved surfaces. It's not a smear because a smear would just be a smudge mark. It has structure. And although you're looking at some pixels at this level, it, it is not moving by and streaking. So it's not meteoric. No, it's flashing. posing. It's posing. Now, when you go to the second image, 1B, you'll see, you know, literally polygonal angles in 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 its geometry it, yep. it's almost like a like a crescent with polygonal angles one two three four so that would probably be an eight-sided polygon if you could see the other sides and again so hang on know, hang on if, if 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 we're assuming a kind of a standard ufo size 30 feet 40 feet something like that kind of like the beam ship that uh, uh, lazar talked about these objects right. were literally hovering just above the antenna to be resolved on the video that Jimmy was shooting with that low light level camera looking up through the antenna at the target. 
Yeah, and, and this warrants, by the way, a much better camera. We're looking for a benefactor to get us about a $5,000 camera so we can get better resolution of these things. So the fact that we had a lot of these things appear during the transmissions last night is record-breaking against our background of the same ex uh, type of experiment setup. So that means we were really peaking and Oumuamua is 3.69 hours away at the speed of radio, which is the speed of light. So that was exciting enough. But then when I went into the house, and again, my background is when I bring the radios within 20 feet away of my transmission area, they are dead quiet in receiving mode because, one, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm just north of northern Idaho in the region of the Kootenays in British Columbia. And there is zero activity in these radios at night. So when there, there's two videos there that says um, there's response two, which is a little bit longer. And in in these responses, I had one radio on the left in the video is tuned to 144.1, which is where I got most of my activity. And then on the radio on the right is tuned to 432. I got a completely different type of response, but I never got it on video. It does remind me of what true fast radio bursts sound like, the radio on 432. So what I did... So wait a minute, I, you have two radios sitting side by side, and yeah, they're the responding video. differently. Oh, no, the radio on the right is... I never get it responding on video, but it did No, respond. no, 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 forget I, the video. You're just sitting there yeah. watching them. Both radios are activating. The one on the left, the lower frequency, 144.1, is chattering away like a like a berserk monkey. The one on the right, tuned to the higher frequency, 432, you get intermittent signals, but they're side-by-side side in essence, and they're totally different signals. So if it was random interference coming from somewhere in the room or in background, it should be, it should be the same. They shouldn't be different. Well, yeah, no. So interference, for one, doesn't show up on my tri-field meter. Again, there is no magnetic field detectable, and there's no radio frequencies detectable in background. So, whatever's causing this on the radio has nothing to do with radio interference or any EMF. So then, what I did, Richard, is I took the audio and brought it into the editing bay. And I looked at the wave structure. So if you go to item number three, waveform analysis of chirps, mm. and click on that image so it's nice and big. Now, I've, I look at waveforms. I've been editing audio and video for 25 years. And I can tell you when you look at, like if, if they were sending back a repeatable mechanistic tone, a, a tone is a single point frequency and therefore the waveform just repeats itself perfectly every single time. Now, if you look at this image, like I'm looking at right now, it's stereo. You'll look at each bundle of waves have totally different structure. Each of the six blips are going by in like one second. All six of these are going by and did it just like that. But each one of them is it has totally different wave structure and that's not what um, single point frequencies look like at all and in fact if you look at the bottom row 
which is the stereo of the upper row, you'll see also they're completely unique. And the only thing that looks like this is language. So mm. if I have a frequency meter in front of me and I start talking and I say dog, cat, you know, Doug, Bob, a word is a complex series of tones, therefore frequencies. So I was writing down all these frequencies that were happening so fast when the chirping was going on last night. And and you gave me the idea to slow it down, slow the audio down to see what it sounds like because that might give us an idea that possibly there is what's called time dilation going on here where yep. the chirps are coming in from a much um, more dilated time perspective than ours. So therefore, they're happening way faster than our brain can process them. But what we do know is there these are not tonal interference patterns because they don't look anything like this. This is what words look like or or voices. So I'm going to play well, for I, you. I think the technical term is phonemes. Phonemes, there you go. Phonetics. So yeah. if you click on, there's two videos that I've put, which I really urge people to watch because when you watch these videos, you're going to really see what's going on. But just listen to what this sounds like, the chirping sounds like at 10%. And you'll, you'll hear, you know that scene in, in um in contact with Jody Foster and the the blind guy is listening and he's saying I I can hear structure in those waves like there's structure in there which means which means this isn't just radio frequencies this, there's real data this is in there so cool David and another thing that's interesting if you if you read Richard Feynman's Strange Theory of Light and Matter and you understand how the difference between repeatable, reliable, quantifiable, meaning mathematically quantifiable, relies on repetition of consistent phenomena. The one thing that behaves randomly in the universe is consciousness, human language, and even human behavior, monkey behavior, were really random. And what Feynman found is the behavior of photons in the presence of consciousness behave so randomly he could not mathematically quantify it. Now when I look at my graph of these these dashes and these blobs of wave structures the distance between each one of them is slightly slightly different which again shows randomness had they been had they ah. been measurable wave peaks because I've got a lot of them I I mean you're only looking at one set of <laughs> of uh, five numbers here or five blips. You were up all night doing this and all day? I was up all night doing this. So listen to this. This reminds me of the movie Arrival. It's it's kind of spooky, but this is what it sounds like slowed down. So just get ready for this. You see how the duration on that last one was longer? It sounded and, like and, a double, a double. Yeah, well, again, look at this, the, the five blobs at the top. The last one was the last blob, and it's a little bit longer than the other ones. But again, look at the, all the little lines, which are the wave peaks and valleys. They're all different. And it, 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 this, is, this is tonal language. 
And and the fact that we're slowing it down doesn't change anything. It's the same data, but it's hitting you slower. And and when you look at the structure, you go, this is not radio interference because that's not what radio interference looks like as a waveform. This is language. And therefore, I think I know what to do next. I, I have a I've I've made six videos of these chirps, and when I look at the total you know, like two minute piece of video audio, I can measure the intervals where there's silence and then where it starts up again. I have bursts of just one burst. I have the number three, so I'll have three quick bursts. I'll see sixes. I see a lot of sixes, by the way. And inside of each burst are multiple frequencies hitting us within a fraction of a second. You do know that multiple frequencies that are all different numbers in a tiny fraction of a second doesn't exist anywhere except language and music. There's, in fact, more in language than music because music, you're plucking a guitar, hitting a piano, those are definable frequencies. But when you see a single little clump and you look at all the lines going up and down in each clump and they're all different lengths, that means every one of those is a different frequency. So there might be as many as a hundred different frequencies in each wow. clump. And nothing does that. Nothing does that except language. So even a bird chirping has phenomenal structure and different frequencies within a single chirp. But technology doesn't look like this at all. Doesn't mm. look like this. And so therefore, I deduct already that this is some kind of language. And, and this is what Tesla and Marconi saw coming in on their radios in the early days of radio that frankly scared Tesla because he didn't know what it was. And, and they're able to interface with our, our radio waves, in, in, our, our radio communication devices in a way that we don't, no one's ever spent any money and time on this. Nobody's ever done it. So I'm I'm immensely excited about this. I really think it it begs for research, serious research. I, I know how to do this. It's gonna take a lot of time, but And funding. Let's and be funding. right out there. It needs funding. For instance, if we had really high quality color cameras photographing these things, we now know, you know, it's that old line from the movie, if you build it, they will come. We know how to bring them into video. We just need the right equipment to get really high-resolution imaging of whatever craft are showing up. Yeah, exactly. So just like like um, Avi Loeb is doing now, he's setting up these detectors all over the planet. Yeah, Project Galileo. Project Galileo. But, but he, what nobody's doing is what we're doing, which is beckoning them with tonal we're sending signal. the right code key we're sending we're it in sending their the right language code. we're sending them the universe in reality the physics back to them so they go oh at least some of those guys know something important and you know that today two of my tests playing the the, the tones back on my spectral analyzer I found two numbers that were spitted out of probably over 100, uh, about 80 or 90 numbers per dash that were divisible by 144.1 perfectly. <laughs> perfectly. Two of them. 
So two of them rules out chance. Do you know what the odds of a frequency that they're embedding in the return signal being perfectly divisible by our transmitting master number, 144.1, not 144, 144.1, with a degree of accuracy of 99.99%. Now that, that is is incredible. Well, the odds have to be billions to one against chance for this. There are billions of one against chance, and the data is there, so it's in the recording. It can be spectral analyzed, and there's de different ways of spectralizing, spectral analyzing data. The problem with a word in a language is a single word is made up of multiple frequency patterns all bundled together, whereas technology like a piano key, if I hit A440 or A442, then you're just going to see a wave pattern that is exactly repeatable, only that frequency. But in a word, you get tons of frequencies all stuck together. Wow. That's why each human voice out of 8 billion people, none of them are 100% identical. You know why? Each one of them, each of our voices, which is made up of the shape of, of, of our throat and our lungs and our chest resonance, have embedded multiple frequency bands within each word that we speak that is totally unique in its patterning to any other likable human on the planet. So that, that that's what we're looking at here. That's what I detect wow. in these waveforms. They and this is and this was you just did this in the last twenty four hours by basically not sleeping and I'm I'm so appreciative. Now we're gonna do another broadcasting session to Omoa next Saturday night, same time, same bat channel. And by then, we'll have enough analysis, including uh, Jimmy will have done uh, waveform spectral analysis, so we'll be able to see the graphs and see the frequencies and, and compare them with what we sent and begin to deconstruct these very complex waveforms. And God knows who's going to show up next, next Saturday night above the antennas. <laughs> Okay, we've got a couple three minutes here to the end of this okay. of this so, hour. So let me that's let me show up. <laughs> let me uh, let, let me bring in uh, Steve Bassett, who's head of the Paradigm Research Group, which is working in Washington on disclosure to get the federal government to finally acknowledge a what's been going on and b what could go on, and Dr. Joseph Bookman, who has run as a uh, Libertarian candidate with UFOs as a major plank UFO disclosure uh, as part of his campaigns. Gentlemen, do you have any questions of David Sarita tonight? I don't think so. Okay, Stephen has no questions. Joe? Did we lose Joe Buckman? I'm checking. Okay, so um, I got to sign off, Richard, because I got my kids in the house, and it's been great to be here. Have a great show with Steve. Haven't talked to you in a long time, Steve. Love to catch up with you one day. Um, so, have a great night, you guys. I gotta go. I gotta run. Super. Best Thank you. you so much for this update. This is this is definitely a lot of food for thought. Now, do, do we have a Joe on the line? Uh, he dropped out. I don't know why. Okay. Well. That is usually what happens when things go bump in the night. Um, the only thing, the only thing I can say is that the reason that we got such immediate, extraordinary results, 
And I want to point out that the uh, analysis that David presented just in the last few minutes was taken in the uh, four-plus-hour window, eight total hours of signal travel time at the speed of light to Oumuamua, and then roughly four hours back to Earth. So that data was collected during the time window when ordinary physics would obtain. There are earlier recordings that he made of the instantaneous response that was uh, simultaneous with the appearance of the objects above the antenna. And we have no idea at the moment uh, what those contain because all this takes time. And there was literally only 24 hours between what we did last night and what we did tonight. So um, uh, we will have that for you in another six days. We're going to schedule another one of these test transmission sessions for next Saturday night in our normal uh, time window of 10 p.m. Easter, Eastern, 10 p.m. Mountain to 1 a.m. Mountain Time. And we will have uh, uh, better instrumentation set up so that we can record uh, things in real time. And hopefully we will actually be able to get a spectrum analyzer online so we can see some of that output in real time. Um, I am just absolutely overwhelmed at how successful this early experiment seems to have been. Um, I expected that we might hear something, but of course, what we were thinking, what we were expecting was something kind of like, you know, mainstream SETI experiments where, you know, you listen and you hear uh, on a particular frequency some kind of modulated transmission and then you look for fundamental mathematical constants or something like that. Um, this is very different because I believe in all of the uh, breakthrough listen efforts that were focused on trying to detect any kind of uh, microwave or ultra-high frequency emissions from a muamua, no one tried or maybe even conceived of the idea of actually broadcasting into interplanetary space to see if there would some be some kind of uh, response from far, far beyond. Um, it, it's kind of sobering that, in fact, we're uh, poised on the edge of, of, of something that could be opening an extraordinary window on the entire UFO phenomenology, a window which has, at least publicly, not been opened before. And that opens up an extraordinary set of implications. And we're going to talk about what's going on officially vis-a-vis the government in Washington, the various branches of the, the U.S. government, military, political, and lobbyists, and journalists, and all of that. When we return, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, 
and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank mm-hmm. you.